Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. I'm doing a series of audios, breaking down the Olivet Discourse into manageable chunks. And this particular chunk will be concerning the Great Tribulation. Now, of course, when we say the Great Tribulation, we're not talking about the moonshine fantasy idea of Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, a Great Tribulation at the end of the world the last seven years, and the church will be raptured out before that, and so forth. That is a part of the eschatological poppycock that has been forced upon the Christian public for all too long now, over a century and a half since the rise of dispensationalism. This is talking about the Great Tribulation in the context of what Jesus was talking about in the first three verses of Matthew 24, when he says that the temple, the sign of his coming and the sign of the end of this age, and when will these things be, is when not one stone of the temple will be left on the other, which happened in AD 70. And so the great tribulation that lasted three and a half years that Jesus was talking about was between AD 66 and AD 70, the Jewish war, which you can read about in Josephus, who actually participated in the events of the Jewish war, having been in the city for part of the of the siege. So Jesus says to the four disciples he's speaking to on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, for at that time, that means at the time of the Jewish war, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world from now and never will again. Ah, but you say, how do you know the great tribulation is at the time of AD 70? Well, it's interesting, according to my NIV study Bible, Josephus describes the fall of Jerusalem in much the same language as this verse. In other words, his description of the Great Tribulation fits 8070. And he was there. He saw it. Let's see some examples from Josephus. Quote, Daytime spent in the shedding of blood in the night in fear. Quote, Common to see cities field, filled with dead bodies. Escapees were caught by the Romans and crucified before the walls. Five hundred were crucified every day. The escapees from the city were disemboweled by the Romans looking for gold that the poor inhabitants had swallowed. The burial of these people consisted of throwing dead bodies into ravines. Fathers slaughtered whole families to keep the Romans from doing it. Mothers were killing and roasting and eating their own children. Parents were ripping food out of their mouths and swallowing the food. Thieves were sticking the swords up the anuses of people who wouldn't tell them where the food was, and so the thieves would stick their rear ends up stick their swords up the rear ends of these people. The land all over was filled with fire and blood. The Sea of Galilee was red from blood. Dead bodies everywhere were causing a horrible stench, littering the shores and the bloating in the sun, rotting and splitting apart. Folks, that's a great tribulation. So don't let your prophecy nut friend tell you that this is referring to the end when all hell is going to break loose and you better get ready. No. It's talking about AD 70. It's a great tribulation. Why? Because it was, well, it's optional. It could be, it was great in terms of number, the number of people involved, or is it great in terms of covenantal significance? Because losing Jerusalem and the temple was the greatest loss the Jews could ever have. Um, or it could be both. At any way, it was, at any rate, it was a bad, bad time for the apostate Jews. Now, let's look at a phrase here. The tribulation hasn't taken place, a kind of, tribulation such as this hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world maybe you'll see a problem here problem whether you're a preterist or a futurist there's a problem here doesn't matter because on the futurist view it's true that the so-called future great tribulation with the antichrist and so forth is bad but it's not as bad as getting the whole world flooded under noah so the Great Tribulation is such as so bad that it's never happened before? Well, what about Noah's flood? Well, on the preterist view, the destruction of Jerusalem was bad, 
But is that as bad as getting the whole world flooded under Noah? So if you take that passage literally, as we Westerners tend to want to do, you contradict Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you're a futurist or a preterist, you contradict Jesus. Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is very simple. Jesus is using typical Hebrew hyperbole. It wasn't meant to be taken literally. Now, later, I'm going to go through some Old Testament passages to show you the same type of language could not have been taken literally. I'll do that in just a minute. But having said that, let's look at some passages, some catastrophes in the Old Testament which were pretty bad but they weren't as bad as the burning up of Jerusalem in 8070. So that means that even though you can't take the hyperbole literally, you can take it in its essential meaning, which which was this burning of Jerusalem was going to be unbelievably awful compared to most events in the Old Testament. Maybe not Noah's flood, but how about the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah? That was pretty bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. How about the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt? That's pretty bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. How about the Babylonian captivity? That was bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. I mean, after the Babylonian captivity, it's true Jerusalem was burned, but Israel recovered from that. They in, and there was a return from the exile, and prophets predicted the return, and they built their city again, and they got going again, but not after 8070. That was it until 1948, 2,000 years later. The Maccabean revolt, which happened in the intertestamental period, that was bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. All right, so that takes care of the, of the phrase, this great tribulation was of such a kind that it hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now. Now we've got to take, take note of another phrase. This sort of great tribulation will never happen again, Jesus says. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Well, again, it doesn't matter whether you're a futurist or a preterist, you've got a problem. For example, if you're a futurist, the Great Tribulation is bad, but is it, as ba is it as bad as the whole world being burnt up at the end of the world? This is 2 Peter 3.17 when it says the elements of the earth are reserved for fire. And, of course, all good futurists believe that that's going to happen at the end. Well, how can the Great Tribulation be worse than that? Nothing could be worse than that. But Jesus said this Great Tribulation will be so great that nothing like that will ever happen again. So the futurists have got a problem. How about the preterists? Now, if you assume that the world has been burnt up at the end literally in 2 Peter 3, 7 through 10, where the elements of the of the earth are reserved for fire, and not all preterists believe that, by the way, but many do, well, the Great Tribulation is bad, but it's not as bad as the whole world. When I say the Great Tribulation, the preterist Great Tribulation is the burning of Jerusalem in 8070. That's bad, but it's not as bad as the whole world being burnt up at the end. So how do you deal with that? Well, the answer is it's Hebrew hyperbole. Jesus is speaking in the language of an old Testament prophet. Now, we're going to go through some Old Testament examples to show that kind of language, to show it was not meant to be taken literally. Now, I know that gripes dispensationalists who worship literalism. We need to interpret the scriptures literarily, as people say, according to its genre. If it's history, a historical narrative, yes, you interpret it literally. But if it's apocalyptic, prophetic type language, you do not interpret it literally, you t t interpret it symbolically. And and you also have to interpret figures of speech according to the customary usage of figures of speech. For example, if in English, if we say my love is like a red, red rose, you don't say that your love has petals. You interpret it in a natural way, which is metaphorical, symbolic. Now, before I go on to that, uh, let me say that on the preterist view, Second uh, Peter 3, 7 through 10, not all preterists believe that this is the physical burning up of the world. The elements that will burn up, that, that's the Greek word stoikos, I believe, which means elements, which always refers to the law. If you go back and do a search in 
your concordance, you will see that that Greek word means the law. And so what he's, according to these preterists, what Peter is talking about is the burning up of the law, which means the burning up of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, it's not just preterists that believe this. The great Puritan theologian in the 16th century, Cambridge philosophy professor, excuse me, a Cambridge University professor, theologian, great theologian, John Owen, one of the great Puritan theologians, he believed the same thing. So it's not even true, not even necessarily true that the that, that there's going to be a burning up of the world at the end. There's a lot of problems with that view, by the way. I've done a, a video, Preterist Potpourri, in my Orthodox Preterist playlist on YouTube. You might be interested in that if you want to get deeper into the subject. But at any rate, what Jesus is talking about here is that the Great Tribulation is going to be great, not necessarily literally greater than anything that's going to ever happen in the future. Now, the reason I say that is because we go to Old Testament scriptures, which show that the similar kind of language cannot be interpreted literally. Here's Ezekiel 5, verse 9. Because of all your detestable practices, I will do to you what I have never done before and what I will never do again. That's exactly the same language that Jesus has used. But actually, God did do it again in eighty seventy. He did, he did it again in eighty seventy. So if you take, if a futurist takes this verse literally, that Ezekiel, of course, is talking about the destruction, the first burning of Jerusalem, the first destruction of Jerusalem in five eighty seven slash six B.C. Well, what, let's take him literally. Let's ask the dispensationalists. Do you take the scriptures literally? Of course, I believe in literalism. Okay, well then, was Ezekiel wrong? Because Ezekiel said, "I'll never do this again. I'll never destroy. I'll never do to you." Again, what I'm going to do to you in 586. So either Ezekiel is wrong or their vaunted literal hermeneutic is wrong. Take your pick. Exodus 11:6. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. There's that same language, never before or never again. It's just, it just means like we say in the South, it's bodacious. It's going to be a bodacious tribulation. It doesn't mean literally that there's never going to be one as big as it, or never that there never has been one as big as this tribulation, or never again will be one as big. Joel 2, 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dense overcast, like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appear, such as never existed in ages past, and never will again in all the generations to come. The same language. And, of course, that can't be interpreted literally, because the great tribulation, according to the futurist, at the end will be a cataclysm such as the world's never seen but joel says that whether it's the, it's not clear whether he's talking about assyria or babylonia coming in to wipe out the jews but he's saying that whatever it is is never going to happen again in the generations to come but it did happen again both in AD 70 if you're a preterist and if you're a futurist it will happen at the end of the world in the great in the so-called great tribulation so joel 2 2 cannot be taken literally daniel 9 12 he has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. That's half of the saying. Nothing in the past has ever been as great as this. And he, of course, is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 587-6 B.C. But it was done to Jerusalem. Well, he didn't mention about the future, just said in the past. That, that verse just shows it's the same type of language, okay? Josephus uses the same type of language. This proves that this kind of hyperbole was idiomatic in the first century. Here's some examples from Josephus. The war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. Here's another quote from Josephus. The multitude of those that perish exceeded all the destructions which either man or God ever wrought upon the world. 
No other city ever suffered such things. No other generation was ever more fruitful in wickedness. So, that's the end of that story. Now, let's see what time we're talking about. Matthew, Jesus here in Matthew 24:21 mentions time. He says, for at that time there will be great tribulation. Of course, that's the big issue between the preterist and the futurist is what time are we talking about? Well, let's assume the preterist view, since it's the correct view, at least according to me, it's the correct view, and I control the microphone, Luke 21:22, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Now, notice that its wrath fell on that generation of Jews who killed Jesus. Jesus constantly said in Matthew 23, 8, woe unto on this generation, this generation. And he was talking about the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus. He was not pronouncing judgment on all Jews for all time. And so many people misinterpreted that verse. It's led to all kinds of anti-Semitism. In fact, the word, when the Jews cried out at his crucifixion, may his blood be on us and our descendants. It's not descendants. It's children, which is a different Greek word. It doesn't mean grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren all, all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way to the modern era. No, it just means that one generation of children, which, of course, died out right about the time of 870 or so. So that's where the wrath fell on the Jews and their children on that generation. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 22. Jesus continues, unless those days, the days of the great tribulation when, uh, of the Jewish war, 8066 to 8070, three and a half years, unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. Well, now, first of all, this is an aside. The elect has got to refer to Christians. That's what the word always refers to. It doesn't refer to unregenerate Jews. However, if you're a pre-trib dispensationalist, you believe that the Jews were, uh, that, excuse me, the church is raptured out of the world before the Great Tribulation, leaving only Tribulation Jews on the planet. And these are the ones going through the Great Tribulation. And now Jesus says the days of the Great Tribulation will be limited because of the elect. Elect who? The elect Christians? KB, they're in heaven. They've been raptured out. So it has to be the elect Jews. The, ver the word never refers to elect Jews. So there's one big problem for the pre-tribbers. Now, no one would survive. Actually, everyone did survive because of the, when Jesus warned them. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, the armies that cause desolation, flee. Hopefully it's not on the Sabbath, it's not on the winter, but flee. And they did. They, the chosen ones, the real believers, the elect, who were at, they left Jerusalem and went to Pella and other places around Pella, across the Jordan River and the mountains over there on the east side of the Jordan. Now... When it says no one would survive, it means no one in Jerusalem would survive. It doesn't mean no one referring to everybody in the world, like a nuclear holocaust. Unless those days were limited, no one survived because the nuclear holocaust would wipe out the whole planet. That's apocalyptic sci-fi dispensationalist Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, moonshine. Now, there is a, uh, perhaps a small ambiguity as to who this no one is said no one would survive. I assumed it was no one in Jerusalem. However, you could make the argument that the survivors who are being referred to is not only those Christians who survived by escaping to Pella, but it could be the Jews who were left after AD 70. In other words, unless those days were limited of the Jewish war, no Jew after AD 70 would survive. Well, the problem with that is right after that, Jesus says, but those days will be limited because of the elect, and the Jews that survived after AD 70 were not of the elect, so the context doesn't seem to indicate surviving Jews. However, it could refer to born-again children of surviving Jews, because you would assume some of those would get converted later on, but they wouldn't survive, physically survive, if the Roman 
the Jewish war kept them going, 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 and the Romans, Romans wiped out everybody. Nobody would survive. But the days were limited because the war ended after Jerusalem fell. Now, here's a, a little problem I need to deal with. The limitation of this war was to protect the elect. And the elect, of course, refers to Christians and not to Jews. But the problem is, the elect is in Pella. The war could not the war have kept on going, and the Jews survived. Excuse me, the the elect, the Christian, the Christian Jews, the elect survived in Pella as the war went on. Well, no, not really, because if the war kept going, it would have spread through Palestine. The Romans would have eventually gotten to Pella and wiped out the Christian Jews too. And if the elect includes the children of unbelieving Jews who get converted, some of those would be saved, but they would be wiped out if the war continued. So that's not an objection to the Preterist view, because even though the Christians in Pella managed to outlast the siege for three and a half years, if that war had kept on going, the Romans would have gotten them eventually. No one would have survived, but they did survive. They survived in Pella. Matthew 24, verses 23 to, through 25. If anyone tells you then, look, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. And of course, this is what all this is, is advance warning for the disciples to help them survive this holocaust, this disaster that was going to occur. He wanted the church to keep going. So he's warning them to get ready. And one of the warnings is, don't be seduced by false messiahs and false prophets. Now, I've already mentioned false messiahs, talking about verse 5, where Jesus mentioned it earlier. And verse 11, he mentioned false prophets. And I gave you a lot of false messiahs and a lot of false prophets that showed up around this 80-30-80-70 period. I'm going to give you here just a skinny version of that. Here is a quote from John Gill. There were false abounded, uh, messiahs abounding at this time, both before the siege and after the siege of Jerusalem. Let's look at before the siege. Quote from John Gill. There were such that sprung up and pretended to be messiahs and deliverers of them from the Roman power and had their several abettors, one saying he was in such place and another that he was in such a place and so spirited up the people not to fly nor to deliver up the city. These false messiahs who were saying, don't surrender to the Romans, the messianic kingdoms just around the corner. Why would you want to ruin that by surrendering it to those nasty pagan Romans? After the siege, it still wasn't over. One and another set up for the Messiah, says Gill. Very quickly, after after the destruction of Jerusalem, one Jonathan, a very wicked man, led many into the desert of Cyrene, that's northern Africa, promising to show them signs and wonders, and was overthrown by Catilius, the Roman governor. And after that, in the times of Adrian, Hadrian, the famous Barokhab, I think he means Bar Kokhba there, the famous Bar Kokhba set up for the Messiah and was encouraged by Rabbi Akiba and a multitude of Jews. So... There were false messiahs everywhere. And like I said, in, in Matthew 24b, that audio, I've got a ton of other ones too, which I won't go over again here. Remember, the idea of a military political figure to, us, to rescue the Jews from the Romans was very strong in Jesus' day, as everybody knows. And those days were a time of peace when they were expecting this military political figure to come. Can you imagine when there's times of war, the Jewish war, 8066 through 70, can you imagine during that time how many messianic expectations would arise? But they say, hot dog, now's the wars here, we're going to wipe out the Romans. And Jesus had to warn the disciples against this. Now he said these false messiahs and uh, false prophets will perform great signs and wonders. Now there's a question about what kind of false signs and wonders were being done. 
Option A is they will false miracles which are actually only illusions, magicians' tricks, sleight of hand, or they were true miracles by the power of Satan. And it's interesting, if you read commentators over the last 2,000 years, they mostly tend to say that they were false miracles, only illusions. And I don't doubt that, that false messiahs could do that. There's always that. But I also don't doubt that the devil can't do miracles too. The devil can do miracles. All you have to do is read a little bit of occult literature. I wouldn't suggest you do that, but I did it one time, kind of curious about the kingdom of darkness. And there's no question, those guys are doing miracles. This is interesting. It's cessationists constantly deny that Christians can do miracles today or that God does miracles today. But I wonder what they say about the devil. They say, well, it might be the devil doing the miracle. You've got to be careful. Well, are they admitting that the devil can do miracles? I agree that the devil can do miracles. And I agree you have to distinguish, you have to discern but I don't know what cessationists say. Do they believe in complete cessation that the devil can't do miracles? Well, I believe the devil can do miracles, and you have to be careful. Careful. But at any rate, let's look at the two options. Illusions, sleight of hand, fake miracles, or true miracles by the power of Satan. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. But as it was too little purpose for a man to take upon him the character of the Christ without miracles to avouch his divine mission, so it was the common artifice of these impostors to show signs and wonders, the very words used by Christ in this prophecy and by Josephus in his history. Josephus also mentioned signs and wonders of false prophets, and Josephus, as you know, was not a Christian. Among these false messiahs, Simon Magus and Josephus mentioned before and Barkelkob, who St. Jerome says pretended to vomit flames. And it is certain these and some others were so dexterous in imitating miraculous works that they deceived many. And here's another, that was that quote from Adam Clark. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. How abundant the Jews were in magic, divination, sorcery, incantation, etc. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that magic and divination and sorcery, that's true miracles, not fake miracles. Here's another quote advocating false miracles. This is from Brian Shortley, quoted by D.D. Warren. Shortley is a internet theological phenom, strong reform guy who takes no prisoners in his theology. Here's what he says about this. I think he's an orthodox preterist, I'm not sure. But anyway, here's what he says, quote, Pyrotechnic feats involving fire and the simulation of lightning are also recorded as part of pagan religious practices. Hippolytus recorded a magician creating a fiery demon that shot through the air and amazed the crowds. He also, along with Suetonius, recorded the imitation of thunder. In the ancient world, thunder and lightning were powerfully associated with the gods, specifically Jupiter, and to appropriate that imagery was to appropriate divinity. Plutarch noted such imitation in art and auditory effects. Julius Pollux actually reported a device to simulate lightning to be used in conjunction with the thunder effect. Heron of Alexander mentions a similar device used in theater and attributed to be used by Gaius Caesar. Now for our subject, was it possible that Nero used such trickery and devices? Certainly, he was a vain and lavish man who indulged in extravagant displays. Suetonius recorded that Nero had a revolving room or ceiling to mimic the revolution of the heavens across the sky. If such technological marvels were available, and knowing Nero's boldness in claiming divinity before his death, it would not at all be unusual to have such means used for his self-glorification. All right, so yeah, there's no question that false signs and wonders could be done. There's no question that the devil can do false signs and wonders, and these people were in league with the devil. So I, my opinion is both fake and true. 
devilish signs and wonders were done by these false prophets and false messiahs right at the time of the great tribulation, the fall of Jerusalem, AD 66 through AD 70. Now it says these great signs and wonders could lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now this is a kind of an enigmatic phrase. You can take it two ways. First, it's absolutely impossible to lead the astray elect. Well, first of all, before we get into that, it says astray. It doesn't mean astray in the final perdition. That would contradict the very meaning of the elect, because elect means chosen. It means you're going to be saved. Once saved, always saved. Excuse me, Arminians. Just scratch that from your hearing. But basically, if you're elect, you're going to be born again. You're going to make it into the kingdom. So it's talking about being astray, not into final perdition, but it means astray into believing a false messiah. And then, of course, you, the person who is seduced by a false messiah is going to find himself Later on, he's going to wake up to a sad reality that he's been seduced and, and deceived. So that's that's what we're talking about. If it, is it possible to lead the elect into uh, astray into following a false messiah? Now, is that possible? Well, if you say it's absolutely impossible, well, the problem with that is Christians can be deceived. And in fact, if it was impossible for them to be deceived, why was Jesus warning the uh, disciples about being deceived? If it, was, if it was impossible to be deceived, so I, I, that can't be it. I think what what the verse is saying is the false messiahs thought it would be possible to deceive the elect, but it wasn't possible because Jesus is going to stop that, going to stop that um, deception from taking place. In other words, the messiahs are going to try. If they can do it, if they can do it, if they can do it, if they can get away with it, they're going to deceive even the elect. They're going to try it. In their minds, they, they're going to think, if, it's po if we can get these Christians, we're going to get them, if it's possible. But Jesus has more confidence than that. that they're, he thinks that they're not going to be deceived. Of course, I must say that it is it is possible to deceive Christians into following a false messiah. I mean, look, look at Joel Osteen, Andy Stanley. I mean, you know, we've got all kinds of nut jobs running around in the Church of Christ today, and people are following them. So, I mean, I have, I have no illusions about the possibility that Christians might be deceived. But I think here that Jesus is not talking about that. He's think, He's saying that the false messiahs and false prophets are thinking, yeah, if we can get away with this, I think we're going to receive the elect. It, it could go either way. It's not a major point, but I thought I'd bring it up. And then Jesus says, take note, I've told you in advance. That means in advance of the Jewish war. In other words, I'm getting you ready, guys, for the trouble that's coming. All right, let me give you another skinny example, skinny version of the examples of false prophets. Josephus Quote, a false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple and that there, there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people, false prophets who were also making money, who denounced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. Perhaps that quote might be a typo. They might have announced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. Another quote from Josephus. The importance and accuracy of Jesus' prophetic warning can be seen by observing Josephus' account of the fall of Jerusalem. He writes, A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple that they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now, there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who announced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. That's similar to the quote I just read. Josephus continues, Like the false prophets of old who gave the people a false sense of security during the Babylonian invasion, 
The various false prophets of the Great Tribulation caused incredible misery. Actually, that's not Josephus. That was D.D. Warren quoting Brian Schwartley, who was quoting Josephus. Well, it was Josephus, but it was Josephus at three times removed. But you get this, you get the idea here. Josephus is talking about false prophets who showed up during the Jewish War. Let me give you another quote. This is a guy, a quote from Horsley, a scholar named Horsley, who wrote a book called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. Richard A. Horsley, 1999, Trinity Press International. The Action Prophets, the Action Prophets led movements of peasants in active anticipation of divine acts of deliverance. The hostile Josephus suggests that there may have been several such peasant movements around the mid-first century seat. AD, common era AD, he means. In his general comments, we can discern some of the principal characteristics of these movements. Imposters and demagogues, under the guise of divine inspiration, provoked revolutionary actions and impelled the masses to act like madmen. They led them out into the wilderness so that their God would show them signs of imminent liberation. For they said that they would display unmistakable signs and wonders done according to God's plan. Large numbers of people, inspired and convinced of the imminence of God's action, abandoned their work, homes, and villages to follow their charismatic leaders out into the wilderness. They knew from the sacred traditions that it was in the wilderness that God had shown signs and wonders of redemption in earlier times, and that the wilderness was the place of purification, preparation, and renewal. So there you have it. That's plenty of support for the idea that false prophets and messiahs showed up everywhere around the time of the Jewish war. Jesus continues in verse 26. He continues to warn the disciples, the apostles of these false prophets and false messiahs. So if they tell you, Jesus says in verse 26, so if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now, why would somebody claim that a false prophet or a false messiah was in the wilderness? Because the wilderness is considered a place of spiritual purity. You recall John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, free from the temptations of the world. Now here's some examples of false messiahs. Again, I give a lot more in an earlier video. I'll just give you a couple here real quickly. Simon the son of Jeoras. This is an Adam Clark. He collected thousands in the mountainous parts of Judea during the siege. So during the siege of Jerusalem outside in the wilderness around Judea, there's a false messiah getting ready to take over the city. I don't know how he was planning on doing it, but he was planning on doing it despite the presence of the Romans there. And then after the destruction of the city, you've got Jonathan the Weaver. This is from Adam Clark quoting Josephus. One Jonathan, a weaver, persuaded a number to follow him to the desert, but he was taken and burnt alive by Vespasian, never to weave again. Now why would people start claiming that false messiahs were in the inner rooms? Jesus said, look, if somebody says to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Why would somebody say a messiah is in, in, in the inner room? Well, here's a speculation from John Gill, who says that Jesus re was referring to one of the secret fortified rooms of the temple. The leaders of the zealots were in such a place in the temple. Clark cites Josephus in the Jewish War to prove that. John and Eliezer, the head of the zealots, they hid themselves out in one of the fortified rooms of the temple. Well, that could be. And they could be claiming to be false messiahs, or it could be in some other private room in Jerusalem, hiding for fear of the Romans. It doesn't really matter, but Jesus' point is, look, a true messiah is not going to hide himself in a room, do his false signs and prophets just to a few people. Look at me. Well, Jesus went right down there in the belly of the rabbinic beast, went down to Jerusalem, exposed himself to danger, taught publicly. He was a true messiah. He was not a cowardly false messiah hiding in the inner room. Ah, but somebody might object. Well, 
if these false messiahs would be hiding in an inner room, why, how are they going around to perform signs, if possible, to deceive the very elect, gathering crowds around them in order to declare their messiahship in Jerusalem? Well, you know, some of these false messiahs were in the wilderness, and that wasn't public. That was out there in the boondocks. But they were still doing signs, deceiving people because the people would follow them out into the wilderness. And likewise, also, a false prophet could do a false sign in an inner room with people gathered around and gathering people hiding from the government authorities, like Jesus didn't do, because Jesus was more courageous than that. All right, let's look at who these they is that Jesus is saying, people say to you, to go into the wilderness or go into an inner room. Here's a quote from uh, here's a quote from Adam Clark, who is quoting Josephus. Josephus says that many impostors and cheats persuaded the people to follow them to the desert, promising to show them signs and wonders done by the providence of God is well attested. An Egyptian false prophet, mentioned by Josephus in, in his antiquities, led out into the desert 4,000 men who were murderers, but these were all taken or destroyed by Felix, that's the Roman guy, Roman commander, after promised salvation to the people if they would follow him to the desert, after he promised salvation to the people, if they would follow him to the desert, destroyed by Festus. Acts 21.38 refers to this, aren't you the Egyptian, talking to Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? I think that was Felix that said that. I always get Felix and Festus mixed up. But at any rate, that's one example that's actually recorded in scripture of a false messiah. Adam Clark quotes Josephus again. Josephus mentions a false prophet in the Jewish war who declared to be the people in the city, who declared to the people in the city that God commanded them to go up into the temple and there they should receive the signs of deliverance. A multitude of men, women, and children went up accordingly. But instead of deliverance, the place was set on fire by the Romans and 6,000 perished miserably in the flames or in attempting to escape them. That's plenty of evidence, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus was talking about the great tribulation with its false prophets and false messiahs. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He was not talking about a great tribulation at the end of the planet. So please file your, or actually take your Tim LaHaye, Al Lindsay books and burn them because they're worthless. Hope you enjoyed this audio. See you next time.